Hello. Hey, James, how are you? This is Christian. I'm good, thank you. So, James, help me understand, because um, I know who, you're... Who did you're, you say, Joe? Are we going to introduce her? <laughs> His name is James Grimmelman. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, explain to me the, the, the Cornell situation, because I know you're newly at this new place, and it sounds a little bit um, unlike the, the sort of hyper-conventional law school environment. So, what is, what's the Cornell situation? I'm at Cornell Tech which is a new campus we're building in New York City, or actually in temporary space in the Google building right now. But we moved to our brand spanking new campus on Roosevelt Island in July. Wow. And this is a new campus of Cornell, but it's very tightly integrated into the mothership back in Ithaca. So instead of this being a discrete place that has new departments and new schools, it's actually staffed by people like myself who are affiliated with the department or school from Ithaca. I'm hmm. with the law school. I have colleagues from the business school, from computer science, from information science. The focus is on technology, as the name implies, and particularly on digital technologies. So, so is, the the, idea, is the idea that uh, they're going to be permanent faculty there, but then maybe some Cornell people will rotate through or spend semesters there? Or how, how, how will that work? That is very much the model. We have a permanent faculty here that's about 20, 25, that will grow to about 200 by the middle of the century, according to the strategic plan. But then we have visitors here for between a year and, I guess it's longer, uh, coming down from Ithaca. It was essential for launching the campus. But the long-term idea is that this is a place that people will rotate through a little bit. And also that Cornell faculty who are in New York will sometimes come and just camp here for a couple of days while they're in New York City for something else. Hmm. Sort of Cornell away from Cornell. Now, let me ask you this. All right, so suppose that there's someone who's not associated with Cornell, but maybe they host a, let's just say a world-famous podcast, or at least a, <laughs> a podcast that is, that is famous around the world among the small number of people around the world who listen to it. As uh, niche fame. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Rabidly interested, uh, uh, following. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe not so huge, but anyway, world famous, as I say, um, what are the chances that, that someone in that position could, could come and spend a semester or so in, <laughs> on, on Roosevelt <laughs> Island in New York? I think, uh, we I'm, have a variety of ways to bring visitors in. Uh, so if you have a sabbatical coming up, uh, feel free to you know, shoot me on. Anybody should, uh, the, it's, it's very limited at the moment. But we are going to have more physical space when we're on Roosevelt Island. Sure. And it's, it's really a gateway to the larger communities. Now, why is it on so, Roosevelt Island? Basically, because New York City had a large parcel of land there, and Bloomberg wanted to build a new tech-focused engineering university and held a competition for universities to submit proposals for how they use that plot to build a new campus quickly. Huh. And Cornell won the competition. Awesome. So it's not a fear of an escape from New York type situation. You want to be just outside of the island. <laughs> <laughs> Off Manhattan. No, it was really, where is there a sufficient developable parcel? Yeah, yeah. And Roosevelt Island turned out to be a sweet spot for doing this. Has, has Cornell, I, I, I don't know if we want to keep going down this road, but it's interesting to me at least. Uh, has Cornell 
been, do they already have a footprint in New York City in, in some other way? Have they been looking to expand? Because this is very common among a lot of law schools who are, uh, that are located in a, in a more rural place to open. Like the UGA uh, law has, has opened in Atlanta. Um, I, I don't know. It's an, it's an Atlanta campus. I don't know exactly how to talk about it. I'm, I'm probably not authorized to describe it in, in official terms, but we have an Atlanta experience. We've got space over there to offer classes. And, and uh, I know a number of other law schools in, in who, you know, or outside of a metropolitan area, but close by, want to have that contact with the local. So, so has Cornell done that? And is this new? How does this work? Describing it as the Atlanta experience makes me think of the Coca-Cola experience. Combined <laughs> <laughs> law classes and tasty beverages in uh, one trip. Have you done the Coca-Cola experience? I did. I did it with Beatrice when she was uh, much younger. And it's a perfectly fine way to spend an afternoon with a baby. Yeah. You don't actually get to the soft drinks, of course, but... There's lots of interesting things for them to look at. We have a picture of her with the polar bear. The soft drinks at the end are the, are the best part. The rest of it is kind of an advertisement. The soft drinks are, are pretty cool. And it, it's, a, it's basically a large bar of all the Coca-Cola products from around the world. And you can taste what things taste like in different parts of the world. Oh, that does sound intriguing. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of interesting. And some of them are not suited to American palates. And right. so you can, you know, some people you know, gag over various things. It's fun. Uh, but they, they also have this, I don't know if they had this James when you were there, they have this four, what they call a 4d theater, which I was disappointed to learn did not involve actual hypercubes, but, um, but, <laughs> or but, time travel. Well, it did. I mean, everything in every theater in some sense is a 4d theater. If it's a 3d theater. Right. Cause you're, cause it yeah. pa- pa- time passes. So it's all a misnomer, but, uh, you know what I mean though? I do. So, so one of the, and the four, the 4d part is like wind blowing at you. It's like rumbling your seat mm. which i've come to learn is called butt kicker technology oh nice yeah, yeah. and and the, to <laughs> me the most disturbing part and i don't know if you experienced this james the most disturbing part is when i don't remember if it was an insect which was flying around behind you or something was happening on the screen which came behind you and there was a small basically a stick which poked out of the back of the seat no. and poked you in the back no like, don't poke me you know don't really yeah yeah wow. so i found that the the least, I would say the worst D of the four Ds was the poke, <laughs> was, was the little stick that like, that's, you don't need that anyway. Um, well, it's been great having you, James. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is the second week in the row that we've gotten into this nerdy stuff right off the bat. And, um, no, but I, I was intrigued. asking about Cornell and the footprint in New York. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, th- I don't think you ever, you ever answered that. We got into this Coke thing, but anyway, yeah. University's been here in New York for a long time in a big way because of Wild Cornell. So the medical campus hmm. is here. Ah, uh, yeah. Cornell Tech has actually just officially tipped Cornell over into having more people in New York than in Ithaca. Oh, my gosh. Because that school is so huge. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Well, how do, how do we even get started? You got, so we got James Grimmelman on, who is known for many, 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 many things. Um, Indeed. You know, it's case books. You've worked with James uh, on an internet case book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I read a couple of different, I, I actually read three different things of yours um, in advance of the conversation today, James, and in addition to what I've seen in the past, including your, your paper on restructuring the property course, which is a particular interest to me as someone who teaches property. Um, your, your paper on, uh, as I say, the centrality of research in our kind of tripartite mission as professors, um, as, as, as scholars, as teachers, and as providing service. And you have an interesting take on what service is and how all of those should be vested in the same person at the same time, which I found really fascinating. Mm. And then, you know, 
I, I reached out to Joe immediately because, you know, and I'll just say this, there are tons and tons of people out there who I think we should have them on the show. We should have them on the show. And Joe has to deal with all, all of this and, 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 and invites people. And, but I said, you know, stop the presses, hold everything. Cause your tweet storm on the Google book settlement, um, from a few weeks ago, I thought was just eye-opening. Um, which was triggered by a story in the Atlantic. In the Atlantic, right. Which was a sort of retrospective look at, you know, what could have been or what might have been and what happened. And which is an, it was an odd piece in the sense of like, why now? Like I didn't quite ever get that part of it. But, um, but the piece was there. The tweet storm was there. And it just, it, it raised, you know, I've known, lots of people know about this, you know, I've read about the Google Books settlement, the Google Books project, and may know a little bit about it. They may be like me, where, you know, some features of it, you know, it was a controversy, you kind of know how it was resolved, but you don't know details. And, um, and so it was, I, I don't know why either, but it was great that it came back to my consciousness again through your, your tweets in the Atlantic piece. But so James, maybe that's the first question. Why now? Do you know? I think it's not that now is a special moment. But it's just that the case never really provided closure. That when it started off, the case was a lawsuit about Google scanning lots and lots of books under copyright. And Google was making a search engine, letting people find out which books were on particular topics. That led to a big copyright suit from the authors and publishers. And at first, people thought that was going to be the drama. So if the case had ended as it did a few years ago, with definitive fair use wins for Google and its library partners, then that would have been known to put a line under the case and say, okay, this happened, and now more things are fair use, and we can go on with our lives, and that causes it. But because the case took that left turn into settlement world, it opened up much bigger doors than it ever wound up going through, and there's a sense of emptiness and lack of closure in the fact that that angle never really came to anything definitive. Mm. So to fill in context for listeners, what happened after about a year and a half of discovery in the case is that the parties all came back and announced that they had a settlement. And it wasn't just an ordinary, okay, we're going to give you some money and we'll stop doing what we did kind of settlement. It was, we'll give you more money, and we'll keep doing what we were doing, scanning books and showing them to people, and then we'll take it up to 11. We'll actually start <laughs> selling books. We'll sell them retail, people who want to buy ebooks. We'll sell them wholesale as a subscription catalog. It's effectively for libraries and academic institutions. We will monetize these books in a massive Google moonshot way. And then we'll kick money back to authors and publishers. There's going to be a whole set of representatives of copyright owners overseeing the settlement. And then this is the part that was really remarkable. We're not just going to include individual authors and publishers who say, make us part of your program. That's how the Google Play bookstore works. That's how iBooks works. That's how Amazon Kindle works. That in individual authors and publishers who want to participate can go to the firm can go to a firm that that is sponsoring something and say I'd like to participate and if they can reach a a deal then then they're op they're essentially it's an opt in process exactly and the deals may be more or less standardized Apple is famous for insisting on very standardized terms other internet platforms have maybe more open to some negotiation if you're a big publisher but the deal with the settlement was it was going to be opt-out. 
was going to be opt out for books that were out of print. And that had this really interesting uh, jujitsu effect in which people who couldn't be found wouldn't therefore show up to object to having their books included. And as a result, their books would go in the collection and be available for use. This mapped pretty neatly onto something that had been bothering people in the copyright space for a while, which is the so-called orphan works problem. If you have a book, it's going to be under copyright for the life of the author plus 70 years. And if you think back, you know, how easy is it to trace the copyright ownership of a book written and published in 1934? For really famous books might, might still be in print with a publisher, but for most books, it went out of print after a good initial run, and now probably no one has been interested in tracking the rights for decades. Who do you ask for permission? I don't know. Google doesn't know. Nobody knows. And it could be hard to find out. You, you, could, you could go to the original publisher if they're still in business, but they might not be. Um, and even if they are still in business or some corporate successor is in business, they might not have records from that time. So figuring out, you know, w did we get an assignment of the copyright? Uh, was it, was it uh, properly uh, husbanded such that we got the renewal term? Sometimes that would fall through the cracks. I mean, there are all these complications that make it very, some people might not appreciate just how difficult it would be. Like one reaction of a person who hasn't tried this might be, oh, it can't be that hard. Yes, it is that hard. Can I retread just a little bit? But in the, um, uh, just from a, uh, fr from a, from a non-expert perspective on copyright. Uh, so Google's initial effort was to do something, I think, breathtakingly awesome, right? Which is to put into digital searchable form every book ever made. Right. I mean, that that's the goal. That's the moonshot goal, as 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 James describes it. Right. That was the plan. And uh, so, so one thing that could come from that is just uh, that you have a, a database containing all the things ever written and you can search it and snippets come up and you, you can't necessarily go on and read everything. But this includes copyrighted works, uh, copyrighted works that are out of print and uncopyrighted works, either that have fallen in the public domain or maybe for whatever reason or never copyrightable. I, I don't know what those would be, but presumably there are some. Uh, and, and so what, James, what you describe is the clean win scenario is that at least that part of the project making the initial cop. So, you know, when you, when you scan a book, you're making a copy. And so there's a question about whether that is an infringement in itself. I've, I have a book, um, a, a physical book, and I'm going to put it onto a scanner and I'm going to create a digital copy. That's a copy. And there's a question about whether that is a, an infringement or not, or whether it is a fair use. And a clean win would would be that, you know, not only that copy, but also the, the digital copies that we make and taking that, uh, you know, when we scanned it, putting it onto a server and doing other things with those data, like all of that, all those copies, it's all fair use. So long as what we're allowing is as to copyrighted works, as with the other works that we're scanning, we're just allowing searching, we're returning snippets, you know, what traditionally might be considered if you included it in a block quote in another work, a, a, a fair use or but, but you know, it depends on the portions that maybe Google was going to use. So No, Christian, let me stop you and say, yeah. James, it, it, is your read of the Hathi Trust decision and the Google Books decision from the Second Circuit, those two, those two decisions together, that basically now we know that, that, that what Christian just described, that is fair use, at least according to the Second Circuit. That is fair use, and I think it's not just according to the Second Circuit. This is one of the things that's really striking to me is how much the case moved over time because the underlying cultural and legal landscape moved. Mm. 
when the case was filed in 2005, it seemed like a big, hard question. And people were really afraid about the results. By the time the decisions come down, uh, you know, getting on towards a decade later, it didn't feel like the outcome was in such grave doubt. People were, were concerned, yes. But there seemed to be just more of a resigned sense in the air that, yeah, these are probably fair uses. It was still stunning how, just how broadly written the fair use decisions were. They were <laughs> ringing endorsements of the project and especially of the Hathi Trust uses. Yeah. But the acceptance of digital copies has really moved a lot since 2005. The comfort with the security of, yeah, you can make a database and a search engine and know the complete contents are not going to just leak out because of hackers the Z. And the comfort with the idea that computers have to make copies to do useful things, that idea really seems to have seeped out into judicial and legal consciousness. So the courts had no concern with the problem, the idea that we're going to make fair or non-infringing uses. And of course, we have digital copies to enable them. Of course, those intermediate copies are going to be fair, too. James, do you think that the kind of the velocity of that cultural acceptance, which puts the legal outcome in, you know, it make, makes it more certain, um, is the velocity of that like fast, you know, greater than it was the acceptance of Betamax? Because, you know, the original Sony Betamax, it was 5.4, there's a lot of hand wringing, and now it seems inconceivable it could have come out a different way. And part of that is just, you know, a lot of people bought VCRs, a lot of people just accept that this is the way things work now. And do you think that the velocity of acceptance is, is increased because people are taking up these technologies more quickly or, or people, the opportunity costs are clearer um, uh, in, in, because the, the, the kind of the stingiest readings of fair use are, are uh, it makes kind of obvious the kinds of things that you can't do because of what these companies are planning to do. How, am, am I right about that, that the velocity is increasing and, and, or am I not? And, and what, does that, what does that mean? I don't know if it's faster than it used to be, but I think it's definitely the case that widespread use of a service tends to make it legally hard to assail. Um, this is certainly Uber's strategy, the idea being that <laughs> they can get people who are strongly attached to the value of the service they provide, those people will then go and fight with local government Yeah. so that they can win not just judicial battles, but legislative battles. This is like literally might makes right. Well, might makes legal might right. Might makes popular makes right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and, and to be honest, laundering your physical or financial might through actual widespread acceptance is a lot better than just uh, getting what you want directly. Well, especially if it turns on or, or is mediated by um, a consumer appeal that turned out to be effective. Like I went to con I went to the consumer marketplace. I offered something, and a lot of people wanted it, and that suggests that there was something there to be accomplished that other people had not yet figured out how to accomplish. Um, and I, yeah, I think for, maybe it's the antitrust person in me that thinks, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to sort of prove that you're offering a benefit. So this is a way of actually lobbying the public for law reform which is to convince them, yes, we would all be better off if the law, which you know, currently maybe prohibits doing X, were changed to allow X. You know, one way of interpreting the Betamax decision is the public use of VCRs allowed by Betamax 
becomes popular, which builds mass support for that doctrine. And so something that is judicially uncertain now would, you know, it's hard to imagine being overturned legislatively because the public has decided they like this uh, interpretation of copyright law better. If we think back to Napster, is the problem with Napster that the people who had really taken that, uh, taken that service up had, is it that they had basically no political power? Like they were too young? Compared, you know, it's like if you think of the, the Sony Betamax case and the dissenting justices talking about things which were obviously fair use, like newspaper clippings they would put up on a bulletin board and you immediately, we've talked about this before on the show, Joe, or like what was, what was the model of fair use for the, justice, for the dissenting justices in Betamax was like the kinds of copies that they and their friends make. And they were older justices who were maybe more academically inclined and, and didn't use like videotapes and maybe didn't watch much TV, but they put up, you know, they sent each other news clippings. And, uh, but poor but, Harry Blackman. <laughs> but there were, there were a lot of people, um, there were a lot of people who, and it wasn't just like 15 year olds uh, who were using, uh, who, who wanted to use VCRs to time shift uh, recordings. And, but with, with Napster, it wasn't a, a, a really a kind of a young person's fun, you know, people around colleges, uh, you know, young person's phenomenon. Um, although there were a lot of other people who use them, I don't, but I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. Cause of course, Napster was widely used and people loved it. Um, but it was also obviously infringing and obviously incompatible with, um, with, with the, I don't, I don't want to say obviously incompatible with the survival of the industry, but, but obviously taking uh, obviously, there were sales lost because of the use of Napster. Not not every sale was lost. Obviously, you know, not not anywhere close. So, does it, does the Napster example add, shed any light here? Because it is one of those services which was very widely used, and yet we didn't see judicial ratification. And I'm wondering if that's because of the political power of the people who used it, or it's because of the uh, because of the degree of the incompatibility with the kind of core purposes of copyright. I would say that Napster was too much all at once. Um, and I, you can think of them as like Napster and that first generation of file sharing. Like the first guy's out of the boats and saving Private Ryan storming the beach. Mm. Like they all get cut down. But there are tons more people in the tech industry behind them trying variations on other ventures. And eventually they get up the beach. The way I think of that issue, Christian, is the, the Napster phenomenon, it's, it doesn't have the beneficial argument in the, the videotape case of I can record something that was freely broadcast. This is the paradigm that gets used in the case, yeah, right? Yeah. I can tape something that was freely broadcast and I can watch it later. With my family and... Right. Yeah. So I'm not... It, it isn't the, the, the notion that I am failing to pay the going rate for a thing that's sold on the market. Yeah. It, it doesn't... It's, it's very hard to make that argument. Yeah. Right? Um against that as the sort of the paradigm that's offered in the case as a way to think about. Now, admittedly, the Sony Betamax, it almost came out the other way, right? Yeah. They held it over for a second term, it gets re-argued, and then comes out to 5-4 the other way. But it almost went the other way. Um, so Napster doesn't have that. It also doesn't have what the benefit that the Google Books or the Hathi Trust case has, which is you do the copying in the pursuit of the production of a new kind of thing that can't exist and didn't exist without your copying activity. But it, but it generates a new thing, right? A, a new database, a new way to offer snippet searches, a new way to... That, Napster does. doesn't have that, yeah, right? It, it just has, yeah, you were listening to those songs before, you were paying for them, now you're not. Uh, of course, some other people are getting songs that they wouldn't have gotten because they weren't willing to pay for them, so they're now 
you know, maybe there's some new marketing phenomenon going on, but there's no transformation to use the copyright I, buzzword. I, right? yeah. There's no transformation that that the Napster thing presents, or at least that's how I perceive it. But I it. like James' analogy of the kind of the storming the beach in a way be, um, to, to that point, because um, Napster did a tremendous public good by forcing the hand of the music industry and allowing in Steve Jobs and the 99 cents per song, which eventually became streaming, right? Mm, and, right. and so I would say there is a fundamentally different kind of thing that, that Napster showed, which was... But it itself didn't do or no, provide. Exactly. Right. That, that's the thing, right? But, but, it, but it did show, like, it, it, it did provide a kind of thing that you couldn't otherwise get, which was access to every song ever made instantly uh, or relatively instantly. And that, you know, for people who use Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal or one of these services now yeah. and you pay, it is a fundamentally different experience than certainly when I was a kid and I had to decide, do I take my... 15 or $20 and right. buy this new CD or not. And I've got to read reviews and maybe, maybe there's a listening station in the music. Yes. Right. But being able to say, oh, I wonder what I, I found so much more music. I mean, we talked about this with music the, the other week, right. But the, 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 this like random access to all the world's music in the same way that Google could provide like random access to all the world's books right. is a fundamentally different kind of thing. And, and Napster was the first to provide that, or at least to my knowledge, one of the first to provide that. And when it showed that it was possible, and in fact, I think this is a, a general principle, right? When, when somehow the opportunity costs of artificial constraint are demonstrated, it, it seems to me that if it's technically possible to, to realize the opportunity benefits or to, to eliminate those costs and someone demonstrates that, that it's, th those costs are not long for this world. Someone is going to get there. Now, it's taken a long time to get to streaming. You know, we had to go through this 99 cent phase, right? But we've gotten there. And 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 it's so obvious that once the technical capacity is there for people to pay a small amount of money and access all the world's music, that that is how everything is going to work. And I think I think you know it was Napster showed what was possible. And once you see what's possible, it's like, right. well, I'm not going back. And that's a benefit that isn't copyright law cognizable in the same way that the the Google uh, ability to search books and find out what terms are used on what pages is is. Copyright can easily get its hooks into that conversation. Yeah, because the transformation is not on a like per work base. It's it's like what's transformative is your qualitative experience of the of the form and your understanding of the business and what's yeah. possible as a business. So so James, what um, so what was it about the Google Books? Um, uh, you know, whether you could think of it as a settlement or debacle or whatever, what was it about that that kind of took it from this? rather obvious cultural extension of fair use to something which is more problematic. So the settlement was a really good window onto Google for people. It encapsulated, I think, everybody's hopes and fears about Google right. in a way that just is, sums up that particular internet empire in the way that the perpetual privacy panics around Facebook perpetual manipulation panics around Facebook play out. That this was just the essence of Google's scan it all, grab it all, put it all inside the giant machine, and people projected all of their hopes and fears onto that. The settlement creates this unprecedented the metaphor that was made even in Google's own briefs was the Library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And we know how we know what happened to that. You can see that either as a cautionary tale about putting all of your books to a centralized place, or about a cautionary tale about making sure we build new institutions that keep books safe. Right. 
And so this got linked with very long-term beliefs about the history and the future of written text. So people could look either to this as an amazing opportunity to build for words what we were just talking about for music. The everything together in one place, no more artificial scarcity, no more artificial divisions. We are going to put the sum total of human knowledge in an accessible way. We're going to build, uh, you know, take your favorite science fiction utopian vision, we're going to build a memex. Mm. Uh, it's also possible to look at the exact same settlement agreement and say that this is Google clamping down and arrogating to itself something that belongs to the public. This is the collective intellectual heritage of humanity. And this one company is going to sit athwart it, uh, controlling who has access on what terms, and profiting from watching us read. So it rolls together privacy concerns. It rolls together antitrust concerns about a dominant company. It rolls together copyright concerns about doing things with books without their owner's permission. And if you look at the fact this was all being done through a class action settlement, it also raises questions about, you could call it civil procedure, or you could call it democracy. <laughs> Does a judge get to sign off on this? You know, so a group of lawyers in a room and a federal judge could collectively bring this into existence. And for a lot of people, myself included, that was what the Department of Justice called a bridge too far. If we just stopped at the at the fair use when stage, the kind of the, what would have been, you know, just an approval of. But didn't come until years later. Right. But, but if we, if we had, if, if all that were approved and all we agreed on was that it is okay for any company to, uh, to scan books and to make them searchable and to return snippets. And that was, and maybe the links to where you could buy the book or, or where you could find the book. Um, that, that, that's not necessarily problematic, right? I mean, because then you can have other entrants come in and, and do this. You might think it's wasteful rather than having, you know, treating scanned books as kind of utility and, and having, um, you know, a compulsory license access to this in some way. Well, you can imagine different ways of doing it. Um, but, but at least if, if, it's, if that's a fair use, then anybody can do it, right? What is it about the Google Books settlement which is anti-competitive? I mean, what additional uses were they making which are clearly... Or, or which kind of took this from a clean, fair use win into something that had to be negotiated between parties where they are giving up future rights. Okay, so I can make a decent fair use case. I can make a very good fair use case that I should be able to scan, index, and return results against a corpus. And you see this playing out in images on the web. You see it playing out in news video and news clipping services. The exact contours of fair use there might vary based on your views and the specifics, but the idea that there's a fair use case there is pretty widely accepted. What Google was going to do is sell you the whole book, and selling whole books is the core of copyright in books. So in order to justify that, you need some really special purpose argument, like Hathi Trust made successfully with access for disabled students. That there is a special group or a special class of uses that we can make a fair use argument that wouldn't work everywhere. But if you're trying to make that fair use argument for, we should be able to scan this book and sell it. And we'll just, we'll hold some money for you, but we're gonna sell it and set the terms ourselves. 
or we'll sell it as part of a big subscription. It's really hard to make that argument without sweeping authorial control over publication out the window. It basically says copyright is no longer a right to stop unauthorized publication. It's merely a right maybe to get paid if somebody makes money from your book. And so the core assumptions needed to make that okay go against basic tenets of the copyright system. So there's no way that you're going to get there simply by a court saying, yes, Google can go ahead and do it. The only way to make that allowable through the procedure, procedure system we've got is through something that has the word settlement or license written at the top of the page and at least nominally signed by all the parties whose copyrights are implicated. The class action settlement was a way of getting that without actually physically rounding up every copyright holder for their signature because many of them couldn't be found. And it's that last part that seems uh, particularly troubling in combination with the notion that, uh, so, so Google is achieving outcomes with authors um, that no fair use argument could ever get them because it's that core copyright activity you were just describing, selling whole copies of whole books. To the um, whole market. Right. So, so Google is getting that outcome and it's getting it with respect to a bunch of n- people who are not present, indeed cannot be identified. That's, that's the predicate of Orphan Works. Um, yep. And Google is getting it in a way that no Google competitor will be able to unless they go through their own exercise of getting sued and settling. So it's not a general purpose competitive principle like Christian was describing before, of if there's a fair use holding, people in the public can avail themselves of that legal theory, try it, see what happens, et cetera. That, you know, Google is getting basically a, a statute written for one, only it's not a statute and it's not written by a legislature and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Fair use holding is law. Anybody can rely on that to do the same thing the court said was legal. A settlement is only officially for the parties. So that's good for Google. Uh, good this right only, no one else. In theory, and some of the proponents of the settlement did make this argument, somebody else could get sued and get its own class action settlement. There are a few problems with this, uh, one of which is in order for the settlement to be ripe, you'd have to actually go out and start scanning books. So put yourself at the risk that you get sued by people who wouldn't settle with you. And then second, you actually have to get some people on behalf of the class to sue you and reach similar settlement terms. And if you do out the game theory on that one using standard antitrust models, you pretty quickly see that there's no incentive for the author class to settle with anybody else because it's going to cut the competition in that market in a way that doesn't bring any additional revenue to the uh, point of class. So there's nobody who is an incentive to do the deal with Google because it gets a large corpus of books out there and having a bigger corpus means that you're spreading the costs of the overhead across a larger group. So it's an advantage of scale there. There's no, there's no angle in doing this whole thing twice, especially when you look at the massive legal fees the case generated around the settlement. Is, it, is this because, of, so in this case, a bilateral monopoly is preferable to, I guess it would be a monopsony because... Um, is, is that because these settlements have to be seriatim and can't be negotiated again and again? Cause, cause you know, I, I standard thinking, I guess would be that, that if the, um, if the, um, booksellers have something, um, uh, that they, 
I guess they're buying I, monopoly or monopsony. I guess it doesn't matter, but uh, that they, they would be better with a bunch of Googles who are all, you know, who all want to buy the, the one thing they're selling. Right. So I guess it would be a monopoly in this case. You could look at it either way, depending on who the buyer and who the seller is. Uh, uh, but, but in this case, you have to reach a settlement once and then move on. And we're not going to revisit the Google settlement. And then competitor A comes in and they're going to reach a settlement. So, but presumably, I guess they could maybe like that, that competitor is not going to survive in the marketplace unless they're offering as competitive with Google's. But Google's settlement is already locked in. Google settlement's locked in. And Google settlement has a most favored nations cause in it. Ah, uh, yeah. So basically, the the author's preference at that point, I would think, would be, um, uh, we hope that Google figures out a way to engage in pretty aggressive price discrimination, so that they make sure that they're charging everyone no more than the most they would pay, so that they get to reach as many customers as possible. Right. Um, you'd be concerned about monopoly pricing, leaving a bunch of unsatisfied customers who weren't willing to pay that monopoly price. This is the nature of monopoly, higher prices, lower output. So what's the workaround for that? Price discrimination, right? So you hope they figure that out. Um, Again, if you're thinking of the authors in the most, what's their most cold-blooded self-interest, I think that would be it. And, and you know, so the, the troubling thing here is that we all want what Google Books is trying to provide, Right? We all want random access to all of the world's written works. Um, fair use doesn't get us all the way there because the snippets alone are not enough. You want to get the out-of-print books that are still in copyright where the person who holds the rights can't be located. Like you'd like for those. So you, and, and you would like a, you know, maybe to surface the public domain in, the, in that same context. I mean, you want like one yeah. corpus, right? So the public domain works could actually compete with the in-copyright works. And you, maybe, you, you, don't live, and maybe uh-huh. you don't live near a library. So you want all of that. Right. Um, and the question, and, and it's also clear that's how things should work. There should be access to that. There should be a price that you can pay to get all of these works. So there, there should be maybe even an all-you-can-eat subscription plan. I mean, everyone would be better off with some kind of deal. And, and James, I take it that, and your paper argues that the, the problem here is not with, that, not with it ultimately achieving that end result, but how to do so consistent with democracy and rights. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and, and, and so like what Joe said, basically that this kind of settlements that kind of excuse future conduct against that injure other people, that, that's the, the essence of, of, of making a rule which dictates how future conduct should be evaluated and how people should be compensated for that future conduct. That is essentially legislative and involves representation. And so kind of representative legislative style judgments about the future, I think your basic argument is those should be made by legislatures. Yeah. So I have a paper about this uh, and I make, I try to generalize from what I thought was wrong with the settlement to What's wrong with using this class action mechanism to resolve things that go far beyond what was actually at stake in the lawsuit? So to me, the really crucial distinguishing feature is this is about future conduct releases. That is, it is not a case in which Google is going to get settlement in order to resolve existing legal claims against it. And it's not even a case in which the settlement would say, okay, you can keep on doing the thing that you've been doing provided you pay permanent compensation for it. So this is not a permanent nuisance from a polluting factory in which we're going to fix damages in lieu of an injunction. It's actually, we sued you for A, but the settlement says you can also do B, C, and D, which were never at issue and couldn't have been at issue 
in the lawsuit. And once you do something like that, you realize, wait a minute, if that's allowed, then I sue you in a class action for leaving banana peels on your sidewalk. And we reach a settlement, you on behalf of yourself and me on behalf of everybody in a 50-mile radius, allowing you to just blatantly violate nuisance and all kinds of other property laws in building a gigantic amusement park. And how did we get from leaving a banana peel out to building an amusement park? Well, there's no connection there. But if you can go beyond the scope of the lawsuit, uh, then civil procedure no longer acts as a check on courts making massive collective decisions of that sort. So for legitimacy reasons, this is the kind of thing that has to go through political processes. It's also the kind of thing in which we're making massive decisions about the future with bad information in ways that are hard to revise, that give you concentrated power over large groups, and that just raise the risk that we'll sign off on things that we really shouldn't be signing off because you'll be tempted to go push the limits of what you've been allowed to do. Now, there are other areas of the law. There are other areas of the law where, uh, where we allow private parties essentially to make statutes that, that run in time. Um, a couple of examples are real covenants. Uh, these are basically private contracts respecting the use of land, which will bind future landowners under certain circumstances. They are like private statutes governing geography. And uh, I guess another example would be the use of such covenants in common interest communities, homeowners associations, condo associations, where you not only sign on to particular agreements, like I won't park my car in the lawn, I won't put up pink flamingos, you know, you can bind yourself to such duties and, and bind your successors to such duties. But you can also agree that you will abide by rules passed by uh, a representative entity that you uh, agree to be bound by, like a homeowners association board, which is empowered to pass rules for certain things. And you don't know what all of those are. Yeah. So there are instances in the law where we, where, where we allow people to enter agreements that bind them to rules B, C, and D that weren't contemplated at the time, or at least in particular form. But with all of those representativeness is at, and in particular voice and exit are kind of at the core of concern with the doctrine. So with covenants that run with the land, this kind of ancient doctrine of touch and concern basically probes representativeness. And we have a change conditions doctrine, which says, look, if things have changed too much and the benefits and burdens and, uh, and costs uh, get out of whack, then uh, th- then we won't enforce the covenant or, or maybe we'll just give damages. And so it's not that, that this idea is a stranger to the law, that someone could enter a contract which basically, you know, in, in Hofeldian terms, puts them in a, in a liability situation, right, where they are subject to new rights and duties being created in the future um, privately. Um, but, but in other areas of the law, we have, these, um, we, we have these kind of common law protections and common law exit ramps. And it, is the problem here that the civil procedure protections are not good enough ex ante, or that there aren't kind of covenant-style ex post exit ramps, like, you know, change conditions or are there equitable doctrines that would cancel it, or, or, or is it both, or, or what? It's simpler than that. It's that these are all voluntary agreements entered into by individuals binding themselves and their successors in interest. The difference is using a class action to impose it on people through some kind of hypothetical representation. And, and so the, the, the successors, of course, are not entering the agreement in the typical way, but the, their voluntariness is manifested by, by buying property. So notice is, is key um, in, 
uh, in covenants that run with the land, right? If you if you can show that you bought property, you didn't have notice of the covenant, you're you're not bound by it. If you didn't have notice of the condominium agreement, you're not bound by it, right? So notice is is key, and also your ability to exit the agreement, right? Um, and and I guess you know that that notice is a um, is a key part of, cla- of the class action mechanism, but but it's not good enough here, right? Well, it's that notice there is coupled to voluntarily taking on obligations. That is, we t- we, notice is important only if you are a reliance party. That is, if you paid money to acquire the property, you gave value. And in that situation, you have chosen to take on the benefits of property, and you need to be given proper notice of the burdens that come with it. If you receive the property as a gift or by inheritance, then the assumption is you could disclaim your interest when you would receive it if you right. really didn't want to be subjected to these rules. But you're receiving a benefit, and again, the burdens as a property owner come along with it. The successor in title piece is crucial there, that we ordinarily regard your predecessors in title as adequate representatives of your interests. That's not just notice, it's the adequacy with which they'll be expected to defend your interest, the uh, overlap of commonality interest between you and them. With a class action, we're concerned not just about the quality of notice, telling people, hey, these new legal relations are going to affect you. But we're also concerned with the adequacy of the terms themselves, and class action law polices both for substantive and procedural adequacy. Part of my argument is that in the context of future conduct releases, the ordinary limits that class actions place just aren't equal to the massive scope of the kinds of things that class representatives could give away through bad deals. So supposing, and and maybe you don't, I mean, agree with this, but supposing that the opportunity cost of not getting to the world where we have the library, where we hopefully have several different libraries of Alexandria, which all house the same books, but under different terms, you know, there's some competition in it or something like that, uh, that, that the opportunity cost of not getting there is really high. And we got to get there as a, as, a, as a social group through some means, right? And in and, and your paper, you argue those means are essentially legislative. And I assume you would have no problem with, with, the, with a statute that kind of readjusted rights and did other things in order to, to get us there. What if that's not available, though? What if for political process reasons, for the same reasons that Congress keeps extending copyright terms um, and having the Supreme Court approve it in cases like Eldred against Ashcroft. What if, what if we really can't get there for public choice reasons or other reasons? And you know, and you know, darn it. I mean, the class action mechanism kind of sucks for notice reasons and other reasons. But like, this is a way to get to the promised land. Um, and the court pragmatically seized an opportunity or uh, to, to get there. Uh, is there not like a pragmatic argument for second best here? If we're going to go to pragmatics, I think we have to think about the pirates. That is, if we're going to talk about the political economy, what we can and can't get in terms of copyright law, we can't restrict ourselves to copyright law in the books. And if there is really significant interest in books that we, for some reason, are told we can't have legally, the pirate scanners are going to get there and put them up. And we already see massive private libraries. We're seeing this for books. We're seeing this for articles. We really are seeing it for anything that can exist in a reasonable digital form. You can probably find it on the internet. That's only going to grow. And we're going to reach an equilibrium in which these things are maybe available in the underground. 
And if the interest there is substantial enough, then we're going to find a way to regularize and legitimate them. So we've already seen, I think, fairly significant movement in fair use law, not just in the Google Hathi context, but also as how we think about orphan works. Sam Samuelson had a great conference about orphans a few years ago. And one of the things that I was struck by listening to the speakers and the conversations is how much the assumptions had shifted since we started talking seriously about orphan works before the Google Books lawsuit. The sense of what you could do on the ground was already substantially more permissive than people had assumed five years prior. I think that trend has only continued. There are still massive obstacles here. There are still lots of things that we should be able to do that we probably can't. But I've had more faith in the actual responsiveness of copyright practice to wide, widely shared beliefs than I did when I started paying attention to the Google case. So, so you think piracy pressure is, you know, to bring us back to the Napster example, that that's a key component. And and where where the opportunity cost of, of a world that people want, um, of, of not getting to that world is really high, you'll get a lot of piracy pressure. That will cause people to, you know, that will solve the public choice problem in some way and or, or will lead markets in the right direction. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, for, for music, now that the streaming services are available, you know, there's just, I'm sure there's a lot of music piracy still, but, you know, the, the prices are really reasonable and for most regular people, there's not a reason to resort to that and to expose yourself to the various risks, you know, technical and legal of, of engaging in piracy. And, and it's starting to be more and more the case for movies and shows, right? And like Netflix is a really reasonable service. Uh, Hulu is really reasonable. They're all priced, you know, low enough so that, you know, regular people aren't going to go through the trouble of downloading torrents. Um, right. Unless there's some geographic restriction, like, you know, there's a series which is BBC is delaying for months and months or. Uh, or and it's interesting, too, that piratical activity, uh, if one wants to call it that, um, <laughs> is, is. And one does not. It's <laughs> interestingly, you might, I, I might, uh, but it's, it's interesting because it's competitive. It's, it's not only is it proving the, uh, the, na- the nature and extent of the opportunity cost, part of how it's doing it is competitively. Yeah. So other multiple people are offering multiple different versions of things. So as they're exploring that space of the possible, if there's multiple people doing that exploration, they're finding out different things. They're, it's not a central, only one actor making decisions about how things should be. Um, and I think that's good. Is this like a um, Penalver and Catchall type argument that that sort these of property co- outlaw? Yeah, these of- outlaw. It, it's is that a fair summary of 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 the argument that you were just making, James, that, that it is going to be, you know, maybe even competitive pirate behavior and competitive like gray market behavior that is going to put the pressure to, to change the world uh, in it, both in markets and in, and uh, you know, financial markets and in political markets that will, so you're not as worried about failing to achieve um, uh, this, this greater world. So we don't need to resort to these, to the pragmatic Google book settlement because the pressure will be there, the, you know, um, from pirate markets. Is that a fair summary? If anything, I think that undersells the role that the pirates play because that description makes it sound as though the pirates' role is to nudge the rest of us into doing the right thing. The pirates don't give a shit about the above-ground economy. <laughs> uh, that is, they certainly, you can, the equilibrium today is you can find pretty much anything in a 
legitimate access version and in a pirate version. The difference is simply you pay with dollars for the legitimate one and you pay with hassle for the pirated one. And all that we're doing is adjusting the relative levels of hassle and of money. In some places, you see a really clear competitive equilibrium. So I think with music, you can pay this nominal flat fee for pretty much the fire hose of almost everything. And it's super convenient. And as a result, the pirated versions are available, but for most people, there's no reason to bother. In other areas, I think the balance is different, but the, that's, just, that's just the world we live in now. So, if, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in, I don't know, in, in Asia somewhere and Game of Thrones is not available day one and it's available in the United States, you know, this is an area where there are plenty of reasonably priced video services all around the world. Um, and and in, in a curious way, that very fact may make pirating a show that you have already, in a sense, paid to have access to. It's just you don't have access now. Maybe seem like less normatively bad from your perspective, like someone who ordinarily might have, um, might hem and haw before they pirate something for, I don't know, moral reasons or, or worrying about risks. It's, look, I'm already paying for these services. It will eventually, there's no problem uh, with, with uh, downloading this torrent early um, because I can't get it any other way. So in other words, the, the more the kind of the legitimate services take up the space, I wonder if there's not a, an actual like lowering of the mental uh, bar to, to pirating kind of what's left over. Like if I'm already paying $10 a month for, for, every, for basically every song ever made and there's one holdout, like maybe I don't feel as bad if I go and I, and I, um, and I pirate that one holdout. To quote the great Philip J. Fry, shut up and take my money. Yeah, right. The, I think consumers now have a reaction of legitimate anger when there is not a convenient digital option for something that is popular. Uh, I, use, I think we see this around Studio Ghibli movies. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. like they're, they're bizarrely, inexplicably absent from digital catalogs much of the time. And that people come across and like, well, I would give you money for this if you gave me a way I could. In that sense, the, the, maybe a reason, no, the, the Google Book Settlement got rejected. Right. So, so we don't, but in a, you might say before it got rejected, if you, if you could see all this coming so clearly in the way that we've been describing it, you might say, well, look, quite apart from the fact that it, it's very hard to justify under Rule 23 standards and our basic understandings of, of legitimacy for setting social policy, you could say another reason not to sign it is because you're giving, you're giving away something of value for no reason. Like, cause we're going to get it anyway. We're going to get the outcome, which is, this widely available electronic stuff without having to have put Google in the catbird seat for even a minute, which is what you will do when you sign this, when you approve the settlement, is they will be in a privileged position uh, that, that eventually they'll get knocked out of. So why put them there? Yeah, I'm just, I, James, maybe you can come in here too, but um, I'm wondering if with books, there's a, and maybe this is, I know this is decreasing over time. I think in the Atlantic piece, there's discussion of this. That there is this, I know there is with film, I know there is with, um, uh, with music as well, but maybe a, an especially expensive labor step involved in transferring the mm. printed book to, um, you know, so like 
you don't you don't do that independently unless you expect to gain somehow you know whether it's running ads alongside the search results or it's actually selling the books there's got to be some business model which pays for that relatively expensive labor and i know one of the things in the in the um in the atlantic google isn't scanning anymore so right which is sort of proof of this i don't know if they are is still scanning oh they are it's a very reduced rate but they're still scanning a reduced rate okay but they they built these special scanners and and, yeah. and and you know technology marches on and and so you know you can imagine all kinds of robotic scanners that get faster and faster and you can do it cheaper and cheaper so maybe eventually even a not so well financed entity will be able to scan all the world's books I I don't know it it seems less probable than being able to scan all the world's music but maybe I'm wrong about that I don't know let me tell you uh, I think the we're going to get to a world in which scanning is easy I'll give you a couple different vignettes along that road. Uh, I held a conference about the Google Books case at New York Law School uh, called Diaz for Digitize. And by popular acclaim, the most remarkable speaker there was a guy named Dan Reeds, who built a book scanner. And the book scanner actually folds up so small enough that you could fit it in the overhead bin on a plane. (laughs) He brought it out, showed it off to people there, and created this site, DIYbookscanner.org, which you know, has the plans for how you cut out and assemble the pieces for this. Use commodity cameras. Uh, it's a remarkable piece of engineering. He's a remarkable guy. And there's a, actually a real community around building cheap, usable book scanners for you and I. Second vignette is that the Internet Archive is deeply involved in scanning a lot of books. Now, they're working with out-of-copyright books for their collection, but they've been really doing a remarkable amount to supplement the Google scanning efforts. And Google got lots of negative fibers, but the Internet Archive is you know, in the book scanning place. And then you want to go further down the road, Werner Vinge's, uh, I think it's Rainbow's End, has the vision of scanning the contents of a university library just by ripping the bindings off of books, blowing all of the pages down a giant wind tunnel, while high-speed, high-resolution cameras take images of the book pages as they flow by, and then reconstruct them. This is this is the way that uh, Craig Venter sequenced the human genome, right? Mm. It, it, you 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 basically instead of the laborious process of going through and trying to read base pairs off one by one, you you just slice the whole thing up and you and you sequence these very small parts, and then you use you know probability to kind of piece them back together again. Uh, it's that, what a great idea. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, maybe you need multiple, you know, in a wind tunnel, they keep blowing around. And so you keep photographing the same portions of the same page over and over again. You use probability to kind of figure out what goes with what. It's fascinating. Yeah. The only hard problem, as I understand it, in book scanning at scale at the moment is turning the pages. That's what the people are there for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's just a robotics problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, the the thing about robotics, well, I, robotics maybe not as much as AI. It's, there's always just one more problem and sometimes that one step is equivalent to everything done in human history that has come before. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it is a very minor step, right? And and it's it's sometimes really hard to tell like which is the minor step. Like who would have thought like the easy part is is scanning each page and putting it into a digital form and recognizing the type on it and turning it into something which is searchable and making it available to every human instantly. 
Like you think, well, that's the hard step. It turns out maybe the hard step is, is physically turning the page at a fast rate. Yeah. But the rate limiting factor will out. I mean, as soon as, as long as people are trying to accomplish objectives, they'll figure out which are the stumbling blocks to those objectives and quickly people focus their efforts on those stumbling blocks and get what figured out. So fascinating about the wind tunnel example. In fact, I wonder if you could, uh, um, to, to carry the, the, um, Craig Venter analogy further. I wonder if you could just, instead of like ripping the bindings off and carefully just kind of just shred everything in the library into a bunch of small pieces. Oh God. And just, this is hurting. This is making my, my, my book lover heart hurt. The problem is of course that they, they don't overlap, right? So what you need is like a bunch, you need several copies of each book and you shred them in different ways. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that would be fascinating. Yeah. You just one library, Joe, or maybe two or three. We've got, we got plenty of libraries, right? Not, not the rare books. Let's not shred those. The li- librarians are going to hear this and they're going to be scandalized. Oh, they're going to come after me. I'm gonna have to change my name. Yeah. <laughs> what else do we have on this? What else should we be thinking about? I mean, you, you seem optimistic, James, that, that it is really going to, uh, it's really going to work out and we are going to get to that promised land through one of these kinds of techniques. I mean, I wouldn't call it optimistic. I think so many other things are going wrong. We'll be in the middle of a creative and political landscape that will be horrible for all kinds of other reasons. But I think we'll get the small benefit along the way. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> look, the, these days, look, I, I don't want to talk about the broader political landscape, but I'll take small wins. Small, small wins are at least wins, right? Yes, wins are wins. I think we can agree with that. Yeah. Uh, do we want to shift gears to the scholarship piece about um, uh, h- how service and scholarship and teaching all sort of fit together? Or is that too big a topic to take on this late in the conversation? It's a big topic. I don't, James, do you see any connection between those two that we could explore? Or, or? Oh, when we were emailing about setting up the conversation, Joe mentioned that he thought there was a connection with uh, my work on the Google Books case itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll just say a little bit about that, which is I got into the Google Books case almost by accident. This is one of the classic cases in which blogging drags you into something. <laughs> the settlement came out. I was interested in it. I hadn't, hadn't I'd been following the case, but not closely. I got the, a copy of the settlement and read through it. It was pretty interesting. I had some questions and got a chance to ask some of the lawyers involved with it about some of the provisions and how they were intended and what they did. And then I wrote a blog post about it. And it was kind of long. It had like 15 bullet-pointed things I thought could be improved about the settlement. And I thought that was going to be it. What well, turns out that writing a blog post with 15 bullet-pointed ideas is enough to turn you into a thought leader uh, and an expert on something if nobody else has done the legwork of reading 140 pages of settlement. Yeah, yeah. So doing a small amount of work means like I've now stuck my head up above the parapet. And of course, I get dinged for more questions about what people want to know about it. And getting pulled into those debates made me curious about more pieces of the lawsuit and about copyright law. And so through the next couple of months, I was just without a clear directed purpose in mind, involved in a lot of conversations about this thing and what it meant and what its implications were. And from that, I got sort of almost organically pulled into being a major, a very active academic on the subject because who else was going to step up? It turned out that a bunch of other people did, but it's a good thing that all of us were on the case because it's such a big deal. 
So what I wound up doing was getting a grant from, in this case, Microsoft, which wound up generating its own massive uh, little haha, to do a project to inform the public about the Google Books case. I'm shocked that they'd be interested in that. <laughs> so this is this what created the publicindex.org? Yes, the publicindex.org is the most visible manifestation of the work I did with a bunch of students. It's a great site. I, I hired uh, a bunch of students who I knew from New York Law School to work on building a site. The site had a detailed breakdown of the settlement agreement, actually uploaded and annotated, you could annotate it paragraph by paragraph, very slick feature that was almost completely unused. But then it also had a very detailed, comprehensive document library on the settlement. All of the legal filings in all of the cases, and every blog post, white paper, law review article we could find that dealt with the case in some way. Tons of stuff on privacy, on the antitrust issues, on copyright especially, on international copyright. And we just kept track of all of those things and basically built a public meeting room related to the settlement. We held two conferences. There was the Diaz for Digitize conference I mentioned before, and then another one a few years later about the future of books in a digital age called Inri Books. And the Scholars, Teachers, and Servants paper that you just mentioned is, wasn't directly driven by that kind of project, but I think it reflects my belief that when I write, when I teach, when I try to do public service, these are really integrated activities and that the best way to approach them as an academic is to try and have them support each other. And they're, and they're driven by your kind of curiosity that, that you know, your fundamental uh, kind of the progenitor of all of these three activities is you want to find out what's true. I wonder, you know, within my field of expertise or, or the set of capacities I've developed for thinking about what's true, I wonder what's true in this area. And, and so you try to go out and create new knowledge about these things. And, and what's interesting about this example is that it does cross all three of those, right? You're blogging, trying to inform the public about this. It makes you more curious. You try to find out more. You involve students. And so it's a teaching opportunity for them. But you're also getting them to perform. You know, you're kind of enlisting students to perform some kind of service. And they're learning in that way. But you're also working on this major academic work about it. Like, you know, let me talk to other academics about what's true here. Um, but but it all proceeds from that germ of this kind of curiosity to find out what's true within within a field in which you have special capacities to, to do that. Um, is that a, is that a fair summary of? I mean, it seems like a, a key example of 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 what your paper describes. It's kind of the ideal academic mission. I mean, I, I, I'm always hesitant to hold myself up as my own ideal. No, uh, no I'll do it. I'll better, do it. <laughs> putting, I, I I project my own biases onto the profession. Yeah. The way I'd put it is that academics have a job, which is to find out what's true. And we are given support and autonomy for doing this. We're given the working conditions that hopefully enable us to try and figure out what's true, free from pressures to reach a particular result. We're actually seeking the truth for its own sake. But, and this is where I, but the point of my essay is, it's not that we seek the truth for its own sake and that by itself 
is the ultimate good. We seek the truth because humanity cares about the truth. And so our job is to figure out what's true and then share that knowledge. We share it with other academics as part of a broad and long-term endeavor. We share it with our students. That's our teaching mission. And we share it with the public at large. So that really the core of being an academic is research. And that what we call scholarly publication, teaching, and service are just three related manifestations of how we share the results of research. Hmm. I guess research as a, why do you think that's the best term to capture that idea? I mean, people at, um, and I ask only because, you know, people at um, uh, Procter & Gamble uh, who are trying to come up with the best marketing uh, approach to sell a particular product, um, they probably call a lot of what they do research too. Um, but I don't think that's what you mean. But it also implies some, <laughs> amount, it implies some amount of sweat and, you know, it, inst- as opposed to just thinking. Although, you know, in my former life, I remember doing, you know, lots of mathematics where, you know, after you've read what people know and you're to the point of trying to think about whether this new thing is true, it involves just thinking about it. You know, sure, I go on sure. car rides and just kind of turn it over my head and just think about it. So, but, but I was curious about to James in terms of the term research as the thing because you're making that the unif- the the thread that that is knitting it all together, right? So I would say that the people at Procter and Gamble are engaged in, in research. Now it may be highly motivated, highly applied research. That's also the true for a lot of things that academics do, uh, and it may not have the conditions of autonomy that academics depend on. That is, it may be very directly motivated by, can we use this to market our products? If you find something that's not helpful, we're just going to bury it. So they depart from the academic ideal in various ways, but to the extent that there's guys in a lab or administering surveys who really care about what's true, that's research. So, so you would use research to mean kind of not just the... Um uh, sweat of the brow of, of reading through and finding out what other people know, but, but also, um, b- because that's part of it. I mean, part of teaching a class is going and, you know, you don't know something you want to find out what other people know in order to teach your class. And you would count that as research, but, but research is also that step that I was just referring to after you, you know, the, the, the limit of the field and you think about what might be true after that, whether it's through rational deduction or through testing or something out, something else that's, that's also research even though it's like the word, the, 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 the prefix re on research may be, may be misleading there, right? Because it's really, at that point, it's about search in a way. But uh, it, so, so you really, it, it's an umbrella term which implies both kind of going back over what is known and thinking about what is yet unknown. Yes, it involves surveying existing uh, research results. It involves a priori cognitive of mathematics and philosophy are often in a very strong active action. It involves empirical work surveying the world, and that comes in a lot of flavors. There's surveys, there are GIS, so geographical uh, instrumentation, scientific experiments, uh, and it involves trying to synthesize all of those just through thinking about how do these fit together, how to express it well. Can I ask the one more thing about that? Um... Because I think, you know, law, as against other disciplines, has a particular level of angst owing to the lack of a kind of agreement on what's valuable. You know, to ask what is true in law is sometimes really to ask what is acceptable now. Uh, it, 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 because the 
the legal doctrine is trying, you know, because law is a dialectic and we're trying to talk with one another and figure out what we all accept, unlike maybe physics, which doesn't care about what our model of the universe is. It, you know, presumably we are subject to kind of political fighting within the discipline about where research dollars should flow. It Ultimately, people want to find out what's true about the universe in which we inhabit. Whereas with law, we're trying to figure out, like, what do we want to do now? Like, part of it involves, like, if we do this, what will happen? And that's, you know, you can research consequences and you can, you can research, you know, how, what are the actual circumstances on the ground under this legal regime? But there's also another side to doctrinal legal scholarship, which is making an argument, which is sometimes just resurfacing arguments made long ago, and sometimes it's about just rhetorical transformation. But um, is there is that legal is that research when I'm when I'm making uh, when I'm making an argument about acceptability? Is that the search for truth, or is it or is it something else? Acceptability, in what sense? In the sense that a lot of doctrinal legal scholarship. Does, you know, it kind of goes over what, you know, there, there is research in the sense that it's kind of cataloging arguments that have already been made. And sometimes what it does is to suggest, here's a better argument, but maybe that's not always grounded in consequences. Maybe it is, but even if it's grounded in consequences, the kind of the unstated premise is we should care about consequences. So ultimately, a, a lot of legal argumentation is about a bunch of people in a room coming to some kind of consensus. And that room may be metaphys, you know, maybe uh, may may not be physical. It may be metaphorical. But um, but to the extent that law drives at something other than explaining the universe as it is, but instead is driving at what is our what is the social universe that we want? Um, maybe maybe there's something different about that legal research than other forms of research. Not that research can't be the term we use for, for all of those, but maybe there's something different about legal truth than other kinds of truth? What you are describing, I would say, is twofold. One of it is that significant amounts of what we call legal scholarship, in fact, have a substantial service component. It may not be understood or theorized or acknowledged as such, but by writing a about what the, I think the consequences would be and arguing for a particular set of legal doctrines, I am writing something that is directed to academics in form, but in content is also directed at the world beyond academics. Uh, that is, it's not simply my arguing that 19th century railroad law would have been better if it had done X. I'm make, making an argument that at least in its form purports to say that Somebody who could do something about it should do something about it now. And the other is the, the deeper question about what the nature of legal truth is. And I think that that's, you know, that's theoretically contested. But it's also in part because of the role that law plays as an unresolvable set of overlapping concerns in law. There are the internal doctrinal or formal claims about how various legal doctrines or statutes fit together. So reading cases, construing statutes, doing constitutional reconstruction, you are making a set of arguments that operate within an, an internal, internally closed system. There are also normative arguments about what would be best. Those appeal to a very different kind of truth. It appeals to moral truth. And then you have a set of claims about the con policy consequences of adopting a particular legal regime, or institutions, 
those claims depend both upon some structure of doctrinal claims about the truth of what the law is now and upon moral claims about what would be good results. And then they interpose a third layer of empirical predictions that can be grounded upon empirical study of how previous laws and policies have worked and their consequences and tries to link up all of these to make claims about how things would change uh, if we did X or Y in this legal context now. And there's no way around the fact that any honest study of law is going to have to make claims of all three sorts if it's going to ultimately make a policy argument. That is, if you're going to make an argument that law should be driven in one direction or another, you're going to rely on internal doctrinal claims, you're going to rely upon empirical policy claims, and you're going to rely on moral normative claims. And so you can't give a fully adequate account of law without invoking all three kinds of truth at some point. I don't disagree. And, and that last group, that third group, is, is, is endlessly uh, and thoroughly contestable and contested. Yeah, people will disagree within all three of them. They'll also disagree about where to put their emphasis. Uh, but as a discipline, we're not going to get away from any of them completely. And so it seems that the anxiety that Christian you referred to earlier—that's it—that's just part of the—that's just part of the job. Yeah, and it's a practical kind of anxiety that comes from justifying yourself within a university where you're trying to say what we do is like what you do, right? And when yeah. it's really not, and you know, so there's all kinds of internal political kind of justificatory reasoning going on compared to the physics department or the biology department or the history department or the archaeology department or the whatever right we write papers too we are in the tradition of the academy just like you are and and as as james kind of breaks down there are senses in which that is true and there are senses in which what we're doing is different but there are senses in what is going on in the engineering department it's very different than what's going on in the math department even for two closely related disciplines so you know embracing that difference is um and and what i like about james paper is that it suggests, um, even if it doesn't talk about it directly, it suggests that you know embracing that distinctive, uh, you know, one's distinctive expertise in talking about what is true, whether it is socially true or or, or or physically true or any kind of truth, it points the way toward the distinctive contribution that an academic can make. Yeah, very much. And I would say that it's important not to mistake what is distinctive about a field that it does that no other field does for the whole of the field. Mm-hmm. Just as we would say that something very distinctive about property rights is the right to exclude, but you can't mistake the right to exclude for the whole of property. The same goes about lawyers and law professors' special knowledge. We have a kind of doctrinal knowledge that comes from a shared academic community, shared education, and a long tradition that is distinctively ours, and that I think we're especially good at. But it's not all that we do, and it's not the only thing. Well, thank you, James. This has been terrific. Thank you, guys. It's been a great pleasure. And, um, you know, maybe the next time we'll all do it up at Roosevelt Island. You can see how different the sound is from there. (laughs) I'll play Magneto. Ooh. Wasn't that also shot on Roosevelt Island? I, I don't know. This that's one of those movies that's one of those movies that has the standard kind of beat structure of modern action movies. Yeah. Unlike Fury Road. (laughs) <laughs> which, uh, you know, was, was mind-bendingly creative, but we don't want to get off onto the... Probably not. Thanks, James. Thank you, guys. You have a good one.